Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 22. Again, so good to see you here with us this morning. We will begin reading in verse number 23. Book of Matthew, chapter 22, beginning verse number 23 today. Says these words, the same day Sadducees came to him. You say there is no resurrection. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. First married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brothers. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. The resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? They all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. The crowd heard it, they were astonished. That is teaching. Amen. The word of the Lord this morning. Our message is titled Resurrection Realities. And you know, when you think about it, what you believe ultimately shapes how you live in life. Okay, what you believe ultimately is going to govern and dictate how we live our lives on a regular basis. I can give you any number of examples, but uh, one example that comes to my mind is uh, for the past, I don't know, three or four or five years, I've been helping the coach at the school the boys go to, the middle school boys basketball team, and And uh, you realize being a coach that part of the job is not only to teach how to play the game, but also you have to convince the kids that they are able to win the game that they are in. And when we are playing a game and we're down by four or five points or whatever and we still have a few minutes left on the clock, if we believe that we can beat them, it changes our attitude and we think, here we go, okay? And you try to motivate them. You try to encourage them. Try to tell them. You try to figure out a way to get the ball to whoever can score or whatever else like that because we believe we have a chance. Unfortunately, and this is probably due to my wonderful coaching skills, there's been several games where we never had a chance. And it kind of changes. Part of it is because we had a lot of sixth graders and we had a lot of playing against a lot of 8th graders, and that kind of hurts us too, but whatever. So, <laughs> But I'm sure I have something to do with that as well. And, it, you know, it, it does change. It's hard to convince kids that have playing basketball for the first time 
that they're going to beat kids that have been playing for three years in the middle school program and probably longer than that. Some of them skill level are a lot better. Okay, but what you believe ultimately is going to shape and determine how you live. Now what we have here in this story is a, an attempt to get Jesus trapped into the myth of the resurrection. Okay, and I'm not saying the resurrection is a myth, but the Sadducees believed that there was no resurrection. There was going to be no resurrection. And so in this ongoing effort to get Jesus to fall, to fail, the Sadducees who do not believe in a resurrection come to Jesus with this wonderful and great plan to trap him and to trip him up. Okay, and so we see, like I said, the first point, this attempt to trap Jesus into the, what they thought was a fallacy about a resurrection. Look at verse 23 again, as I just read to you. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Okay, here we are, we've mentioned it if you followed our uh, the teachings that we've been doing while we haven't been meeting or whatever, this is where we kind of left off here in chapter 22, and, and you can go back on YouTube and look at those if you want to, but, but we've looked at the last several sections of these last few chapters have been multiple traps and attempt to set for Jesus in an effort to trip Him and knock Him down. Okay, the Pharisees came to Him and they said, you know, what do you think? You're going to fall this way. We've got Him on this way. You know, you've got to pay your taxes or do you not pay your taxes? And here come the Sadducees, and, and they come to him and say, oh, we'll, we'll prove him to be false by saying there is no resurrection and asking him to answer a, an absurd charge about the resurrection. Okay, the Sadducees rejected all teaching of life after this one. They felt like they had a very strong position. There was nothing about a resurrection from the dead in the Old Testament Scriptures, and especially in the books of Moses, all right, which is what the Sadducees lived on and believed on. They, they only followed the first five books, the Pentateuch. These are the only books that the Sadducees regarded as Scripture, and they thought there is nothing in there about a resurrection. We've got him. We've tripped him for sure. So they come to him with this question about life after death. They were asked... Absolutely sure he would not be able to answer. Verse 24, they said, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies and he doesn't have children, his brother must marry the widow and, and raise up offspring for his children. Now this was a common practice in ancient Judaism, not so much, I guess, by the time uh, of Jesus and his life on the earth, but especially in ancient Israel, this was a common practice. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. It says these words, "...the brothers dwell together, and one of them dies, and has no son. The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her." Okay, and we know this is what happens in the book of Ruth. Right, if you remember, Ruth's husband died, her brother-in-law dies, and there's no one left in the immediate family to marry Ruth to take her in. And you have to remember, this is the day before 
pension plans and social security and, and you know, women's liberation and whatever else you want to say. And, and of course, women were regarded as lower class or not even citizens sometime in ancient cultures, not just Judaism. But, but in the book of Ruth, again, her brother-in-law dies, her husband dies. Naomi tells her to go back to the Moabite people from where she comes from. And because even if Naomi got remarried and had another child, Ruth would have to wait another 20 plus years before she could marry him. Okay, so Ruth says, I'm going to stay with you, Naomi. They go back home and Boaz, of course, sees her and wants to marry her. But there is someone closer in relation than Boaz. And Boaz has to go and confront him, and he does, and he says, hey, there's a nice piece of property out there for you. And the man says, okay, I'll take it, yeah. And Boaz says, hey, wait a second, the moment you take the land, you've got to take Ruth too. The guy changes his mind. So obviously this is the scenario that's presented, and of course, like I said, it's exaggerated to the nth degree in order to lay the trap for Jesus. Verse 25, there were seven brothers among this. Among us, the first married and died. He had no offspring. So the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. Like I said, we read this today in our society in the 21st century. And I don't know about you, my first reaction is, that poor woman, can you imagine having seven spouses? But you know, I got to thinking about this this week, and I may get stoned here, but... I got to thinking, I don't know if I feel worse for the woman who has to marry seven brothers or for like brothers five, six, and seven. I mean, can you imagine your dad or her dad or whoever coming to you and saying, hey, your four brothers have died while being married to this woman, but you go ahead and marry her. It's like, I, no thanks, okay? I, I think I want to be a a eunuch, or I want to be single my whole life, okay? Maybe I want to go on a mission field. I mean, you know, no chance that I'm going to die, right? Only the six in front of me have died. Who knows what's happened? They're exaggerating this story. They're trying to get Jesus. Who, surely, surely, in this silly, exaggerated story, Jesus is going to fall for our trap. Look at verse 28 there. In the resurrection, therefore of the seven. Whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Okay, we have this thought. We know what the Bible tells us in Genesis. A man leaves his father and mother. He's joined to his wife. They become one flesh. They're not two. They're one. God has joined us together in holy matrimony. We become one with each other. And you see the problem. She's been one with seven different individuals. She's been married seven different times. Surely, surely Jesus is going to prove that the resurrection is false and His whole teaching, His whole way of life is going to be proven false. How, after all, can they be joined together as one with seven different spouses? My second point this morning is this. Jesus calls out the error. The error of their ways. Verses 29 and 30. Calls out the error of the ways. The answer is found in verse 29. Jesus answers them and He says, You are wrong because you don't know the Scriptures or the power 
of God. Why are they wrong? They're wrong because of two reasons. First of all, they don't know the Scriptures. The Sadducees are basing their line of reasoning on Scripture, but they have not taken up a generally scriptural position. Therefore, they are in error. They really did not know the Scriptures. It's one thing to be able to quote a passage of Scripture that you think supports your position. It's another thing to understand and to follow what the Bible is teaching in totality and in its whole. It's another thing to understand the totality of Scripture and yield oneself to the Scripture even if it contradicts and goes against your preconceived line of thinking and your biases that you already have. And I should say this, this is somewhere we need to camp out for a moment because this is critical to our lives as believers. If we really want to operate, if we really want to live our lives as believers, as Christians, it will only be done on the basis of us studying and knowing and applying the Scriptures to our lives. And there are so many people who name the name of Jesus and yet are in such error. And the reason is because they do not understand the Scriptures. Think about these verses, John 20, verses 8 and 9. The other disciple talking about John who had reached the tomb first. He went in there and he saw and believed. Okay, this is Peter and John coming to the temple, seeing that, or the tomb, I should say, seeing that Jesus has risen from the dead. They did not understand it first. Why, why is that? Because verse 9 tells us they did not understand the Scripture. The Scriptures were teaching that Jesus would come and die and rise again on the third day, and yet they did not understand it. Or you consider... The road to Emmaus where Jesus meets up with his disciples who are in fear and anguish and depression and despondent because they really believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He meets up with them as they are traveling to Emmaus. And he begins to talk to them. He says, why are you guys sad? Why are you guys discouraged? What's going on? And, and, and they said, oh, we thought Jesus was the one. And what does Jesus do even though he's hidden from them and they don't know it's him? He begins, Luke 24 24 and 27 begins with Moses and all the prophets. And he begins to interpret them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Luke 24, verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to us the scriptures? In other words, it was through the teaching and the revealing of the Word of God to them that they began to understand that Jesus did rise again. And the truth is, the fact is, you will never live the life as a believer that God wants you to live if you don't take time to get the Word of God into your life and understand that the Scriptures point to one thing, Jesus coming, dying for our sins, rising again, and coming again one day to make a new heaven and a new earth. If you don't believe me, you can look at this example of this virus that's going on in the world. Okay, faith healers out there telling us that God wants us to be healthy. God wants us to prosper. 
God wants us to have lots of money and to live to be 180 years old and never get sick a day in our lives. And yet, the news is telling us the exact opposite. And the question you want to ask them is, why haven't you gotten rid of this virus? Why haven't you, O faith healer, cursed this virus and got it out of here? I'll tell you why. The Bible does teach that God heals. Exodus 15, 26, If you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, you do what is right. Give ear to His commandments. You keep His statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians because I am the Lord your healer. I am Jehovah Rapha. Psalm 103, He forgives all our iniquities. He heals all our diseases. Psalm 91, verse 10, No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near to your tent. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Okay, the Bible clearly teaches that God is able to heal, yet all of these verses must be taken within their proper context. Yes, God heals. God delivers from coronavirus. He delivers from cancer. He heals, but there is a greater healing that God is concerned with doing in our hearts and our lives. And it's not just physical healing. It's not physical health. It is the healing that comes from a sin-cursed soul that needs to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And so many times we get so bent up and wrapped up in the idea that we want to be physically healthy and happy and we forget about the fact it really doesn't matter if I live to be 180 years old in perfect health if I don't know Christ as Savior. And I have missed the point of it all. So we take the healing scriptures and we balance those with Romans 8 verse 19 that tells us creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And it will attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, but not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's Paul telling us? He's telling us the reason there's a pandemic, whether it came from a lab or from people eating bats in China, the fact is, the reason there's a pandemic is because the world is cursed and broken. The world is in a place of ruin. The world is in a place of brokenness. And all of creation is groaning and crying out. Every time the, the leaves fall off the tree and the snow hits the ground, creation is groaning and crying out. Every time the rivers dry up and the ground is cracked of the heat and the lack of rain, it's crying out. So yes, we believe God heals, but we also know that we live in a sin-cursed world and sickness is a part of that curse. Disease is a part of that curse. We also know what the writer of Hebrews said when it's appointed to each and every one of us to die. We balance all this with the words of Jesus in John 14 who said, don't let your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Receive you to myself. See, this is the truth of what the Scripture teaches us. And this is why it's important to base your life on a solid foundation of what Scripture teaches each and every one of us. Otherwise, you set yourself up. Lifetime of frustration and pain and heartache. But not only do they not know the Scriptures, but they also don't know the power of God. They don't know the power of God. And what that means is we are way underestimating what it means to live in a resurrected body. Because we look at ourselves and I look at myself and I see a middle-aged man whose hair is falling out, is turning gray. My wife looks like she's still 16 and here I am falling apart can't see three feet in front of me without my glasses on. I think, man, if this is what i got to live like forever, I don't know if I want to be in this condition. But we totally underestimate the power of God. We, we forget that God who created all things is going to recreate us into a new, glorious person. Verse 30, it says this, For in the resurrection they neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The subject is death and resurrection. We are not warranted to extend the quality here behind this one point, okay? You don't have to worry. You're not going to spend forever on a cloud with a diaper on, holding a harp or a bow and arrow. He's not talking about us being angels in this sense. Rather, he is referring to the immortality, the fact that angels do not live or die. And in fact, Luke tells us in this story, in Luke 20, verse 36, he says, we are the children of God. Okay? You don't have to worry. You're going to live like some little cat Cupid or whoever else. See, the problem that they had here is that they assumed that a resurrected life would be subject to the same conditions as life on earth. But when Jesus says you don't know the power of God, it creates a wholly new kind of life. Not a mere reanimation of that which we experience now. In this new deathless life, there will be no need for procreation. And the exclusive relationship with when which this takes place on earth will not apply. In this aspect of marriage, which Jesus' argument is excluding from the resurrection life, rather than suggesting that we will not have loving relationships over there. This does not mean that we won't get to be with our spouse when we get to heaven. Some of you have been married for decades and maybe you've lost your spouse. You've had to say goodbye. It's the hardest thing you've ever gone through in life. You will see your spouse again. You will be friends with them again. You will live with them again forever. I like what Randy Alcorn says here. 
In his book called Heaven, he says the Bible does not teach that there will be no marriage in heaven. What it says is that there will be one marriage in heaven between Christ and his bride. The one flesh marital union we know on earth is a signpost pointing to our relationship with Christ as our bridegroom. This is a mere shadow. It's a mere copy. It's an echo of the true and ultimate marriage. Does not mean that we won't recognize our loved ones or that we won't enjoy the company of our spouse we have lived with so long. Lack of intimacy or marriage does not in any way diminish heavenly bliss In the life to come, all interpersonal relationships will no doubt far surpass the most intimate and pleasurable of human relationship as we now know it. Never will we be again stuck with jealousy or exclusivism or anything else that will mar our relationships here on earth. But we will be totally and entirely different. This is the problem. We don't know the power of God. We don't think about what these words mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 35, when Paul wrote, when someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Verse 40 says, there are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly body is of another. Oh, the glory of an individual who can run super fast. The glory of an individual that is strong and chiseled and well-developed physically. The glory of a a young man or a young woman is in the prime of life and, and they have all the physical characteristics and you look at them and you say, how in the world can someone be so beautiful? That is nothing compared to the glory of a resurrected body. There are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? This is not just an Easter passage for you to read on Easter morning, for me to read on Easter morning. This is not a passage for me to pull out. When I stand over the casket of your loved one, try to grasp for words to say to provide you any kind of relief. This is a truth that we can hold on to today. May 17th, 
when a silent pandemic is sweeping across the globe, when almost 90 or 100,000 of our fellow citizens have died, when our way of life is being altered, our economy is being destroyed, when everything that we knew and held dear to is being laid flat and bare in front of us, we hold to the fact that there is coming a better day for us. There's coming a brighter day for us. There is coming a glorious day. One day the trumpet will sound and this body will be changed forever. You will recognize me. I will recognize you. We will be with our loved ones forever in the presence of God on a new earth. And it will be so different. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. This brings me to my last point. Resurrection is, is a reality. How do I know it's a reality? Because Christ rose from the dead. Because Christ is risen. First, 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Because Jesus rose again, you and I will rise again. Benjamin Franklin was not known as a Christian, but one of his lighter moments, he penned these words for his own epitaph. Here's what he wrote. He wrote, the, bo- the body of Benjamin Franklin. Printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out, stripped of its lettering and gilding. Lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, wa- appear once more in a new and perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. Those are pretty good words. Once more, we will appear before each and every one of us before Christ, perfected, amended, changed forevermore. Verse 31 here is for the resurrection of the dead. Jesus said, Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. The Sadducees, the resurrection was ridiculous because they believed death ended man's existence. But Jesus quoted a statement God had made directly to Moses at the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, if there was no resurrection, he would not have said, I am the God. He would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The use of this term, I am, implied that God is still the God of these patriarchs, for they are alive with God forever, and ultimately they are going to share in the resurrection of the righteous. You see, every loved one that we have lost, whether this virus or some other time, if they knew Christ as Savior, they are alive in the presence of God right now. 
And as I read to you at the beginning of the service, they are going to come with Jesus when he comes again. And if we are still here, our bodies are going to be changed and we are going to be with him forever. This is a reality. This is what I cling to. This is what gives me comfort when I see the sad news that is out there each and every day. I know that this is not the end. This is what helps me not to live my life in fear, knowing this is not the end. Verse 33, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished. I hope you're astonished this morning. Not astonished at me. I know you could probably hear a lot better on TV or somewhere else. I hope you're amazed. Reality that Jesus is alive that we are going to live with him forever. When I take this last breath, I say goodbye. My family is standing there over me. I want them to know I'm in the presence of God. One day I'm going to see them again. This gives me hope, this gives me comfort, this gives me joy. Because Jesus is alive, I know I will live forever. This is possible because as I read, Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. Because he defeated death, hell, and the grave, you and I will live forever in the presence of God. Do you know him today? Have you accepted him as your Savior? Does this truth burn brightly within your hearts? Because he lives, you too will live forever. Know the scriptures. Know the power of God. Let it sink into your life and let it change you, I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and close the word of prayer and the song here as we finish up this morning. You need to hold on to this truth. Because like I said, it may be you. I don't know all the truth and all the reality of this virus and everything else. But if it's not the virus, it will be something. It may be old age, it may be a cancer maybe a drunk driver on the side of the road. All of us will face this horrible enemy. But we can face it with a calm assurance that because Christ lives, we too will live also. And we will be with him forever. That truth needs to sink deep within your heart. As you go through this world, a veil of tears to wake up in the morning and my body hurts in places I didn't realize I had. I realize this is not the end. As I hear the sad news about someone else, I realize this is not the end. Let's pray. Lord, help this truth to sink within us.